Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Recently on Animals Today, we've been talking about horses and the pervasive cruelty in the horse racing industry. Racing horses are abused in so many ways, and at the end of their careers, most of them are sent to slaughter in Mexico and Canada. Many others sustain injuries while racing, such as broken bones that cannot be repaired, and then get euthanized on the track or carted away and killed behind the scenes. And there is yet another horrific and cruel enterprise that abuses tens of thousands of horses around the world, only to produce a medicine of highly questionable value for menopausal women. The urine of pregnant mares, referred to as PMU, is the substance that forms the basis of this cruel and dangerous industry. In the seven years Animals Today has been on the air, we have not covered this topic, but it's very important that we understand the truth about the industry, how it harms horses, how it harms people, and why everyone should oppose the use of PMU drugs. So I'm very pleased to welcome Susan Wagner, president of Equine Advocates. Hi, Susan. Hi, thank you for having me. Susan, many people are probably not aware of the pregnant mare's urine or PMU industry. Could you please provide us a little history on its use and when it hit the scene? Well, they've tried to keep it a secret and they've been very good at it. But the truth is that it's an industry that began in 1942. Premarin at 73 years old is by far the oldest estrogen marketed for menopause but only about 17% of it is bioidentical with human estrogen, and the rest of it is equine is, is, is made up of equine estrogens, impurities, and properties that its own maker still cannot identify in seven, 73 years. And now you have the Premarin family of drugs, which also includes, well, it's Premarin, and then there's Prempro, Prem phase and a new drug called Duavi, which we'll get to later. But in the beginning, uh, they manufactured, it was, uh, the company was called American Home Products out of Philadelphia, began producing Premarin um, in New York and in Ontario, and soon the, the industry moved primarily to Manitoba, where they produced it in Brandon at a, at a plant called Wyeth Airst. And then there were two other provinces in Canada where they had PMU factory farms, which was Saskatchewan and Alberta, and there were quite a few in North Dakota. Um, today, um, most of the PMU production has been transferred to China. But you need to know that I would say the numbers, you know, vary, but at the height of PMU production in the 90s, there may have been as many as 70,000 PMU mares standing on pea lines. And just so that your listeners know what that is, in order to, in order to produce PMU, pregnant mare's urine, a mare has to be pregnant. And so they have these mares standing in one spot, uh, tied in a tiny tie stall, and they have a, a um, well, it's actually plumbing, and it catches the urine 
which is filled with estrogen because they're pregnant. And then the byproducts of this are the foals. And of course, you don't have homes for 70,000 foals. So most of those foals would be sent to feedlots, fattened and sent to slaughter. Now, most women didn't know this was happening, but there was a study that was instituted by the National Institute of Health back in 2002 um, because a lot of women were getting sick from this drug and there were a lot of negative side effects and so the women's health initiative was this massive study and the most dramatic thing that happened is that halfway through this study it was stopped because the the results that came out of it was that PMU drugs cause serious health risks and increase the risks, in fact, of breast cancer, heart disease, heart attacks, clotting, strokes, and dementia. And after that, PMU production plummeted. You know, I should backtrack for a moment. Because Premarin came out so long ago, it was the only game in town. And so it was called the gold standard. But when the Women's Health Initiative hit, a $2 billion profit (laughs) that this drug company was making suddenly was cut in half. And at that time, the drug company knew what was coming down the pike. They knew what was going to come out of this study. And so we don't know the exact date, but somewhere around the time of 2002, but maybe even before then, they started to secretly transfer production to China. And I didn't even know about it until, you know, just a year or two ago, but this has been going on steadily. Now, in 2009, American Home Products, which had changed its name to Wyeth, merged with Pfizer, which is the biggest drug company in the world. And so where you, may, where you had maybe up to 70,000 mares standing on PMU lines in Canada, there are now 90,000 of these mares standing on line in China. Wow. And what is the fate of the horses who are exploited to make these drugs? They're basically treated like four-legged drug machines. Um, Because we have rescued so many of them over the years, my heart goes out to these PMU mares because they're treated as though they're not even alive. This is all, you know, imposing terrible suffering on animals in pursuit of great profits. That's what this is all about. And so some of these mares are absolutely out of their minds because they've been yelled at, they've been hit, there's never been a kind word said to them. They're just there for one purpose and one purpose only, to be kept constantly in foal, to produce this estrogen-rich urine, and then when they can no longer produce, get sent to slaughter. That's the fate of a PMU mare. Now, the FDA recently approved a new drug called Duavi, which contains PMU. Knowing what we know about the dangers of drugs manufactured from PMU, why was this approved? 
And why is Premarin on the market and still available? Well, that's the $64,000 question. Why would the FDA approve yet another PMU drug when um, Pfizer and Wyeth have already paid out $1.7 billion in lawsuits for women who have died and gotten sick from this? Um, one, there's a wonderful um, physician who's now retired in Canada. His name is Dr. Ray Kelasami. And he was a speaker at the American Equine Summit last year. That it's, a, it's an event that we hold every year. And he had been um, prescribing the Premarin family of drugs from, I think, 1974 to 1994. And then he came out publicly against it and said he would never prescribe it again. Um, he said the only way he would prescribe it is if, is if that women that he gave alternatives to complained that it didn't work and they wanted to go on Premarin. And he said he prescribed thousands of prescriptions uh, for alternatives and not one person wanted to go back on Premarin. But there are now, as there were not in, in 1942, there are now many safer alternatives, according to doctors. One of the speakers that we had at this year's summit was uh, Dr. Geraldine Pryor, and I have to tell you, she is world-renowned. Um, she is a professor of endocrinology at the Department of Medicine at the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research at the University of British Columbia. Um, she has dedicated her life to women's health, and in her talk, she said, uh, she would compare the taking of PMU drugs to driving a Model T down the Audubon. And Dr. Kelasami corroborated that because these are old, out-of-date, backward drugs being used today just because the drug companies can get away with it. A lot of doctors will not prescribe PMU drugs anymore. but. The drug company is so wealthy and so powerful that they inundate, you know, these clinics and doctors and give them thousands and thousands of dollars worth of free samples. You know, a lot of the smaller drug companies can compete. But the sad, really sad thing now is that in China, there is no rescue, there is no oversight, and who wants to take drugs made in China? See, this is the thing they're trying to keep from the American public. And you mentioned Duavy. This is, okay, why did the FDA approve Duavy? Well, now they have a new patent. What's interesting about Duavy, it's sort of like a Prempro light. And because Premarin is central to estrogen replacement, and Prempro is central to hormone replacement because it has progesterone in it. And so. Duavy is sort of like a Premarin light, and it contains Premarin, and it contains another drug called Basidoxafene. Basidoxafene is not approved in the United States as a standalone drug because of the risks of clotting. So the FDA approved a drug that has a drug in it that they haven't approved. Don't go away more with Susan Wagner, president of Equine Advocates, right after the break.
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. We're speaking with Susan Wagner. Susan, why don't you finish your thoughts about Duavi? Yeah, Duavi is a brand new drug that was approved um, by the FDA at the end of 2013. And it's a combination of Premarin and a drug called Bazadoxafine. Bazadoxafine is a drug that has not been approved by the FDA as a standalone drug because of the risk of clotting. And so how can they approve a drug that has a drug in it that they have not approved? The other thing about it is that if you read all the information that they include, it says that the contents are basidoxyphene and conjugated estrogens. It makes no mention of the fact that those are conjugated equine estrogens. So somehow the FDA allowed the drug company to get away with not mentioning Premarin. Um, as one of the ingredients. So I asked my own doctor, I said, do you know what's in this? And he did not know. Mm. Uh, he didn't know that the conjugated estrogens in Duavi uh, was derived from horse urine. We really want to see women get the word out because these drugs, according to, not myself, because I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not about to give advice, but according to a lot of doctors who stop prescribing PMU drugs, there are just so many new alternatives where you do know exactly what's in it. There's just no reason to use horses to produce these drugs anymore. And I have to tell you, we held the American Equine Summit in, in, uh, in May, and we opened with a fabulous letter from Gloria Steinem, and it's very short, and I'd like to read it. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but she basically says this. I want to personally welcome you to this meeting and thank you for helping to alert the public to the dangers to horses as well as to women that have come with the use of pregnant mare's urine as a source of, hum of human treatment. You are serving the welfare of all sentient beings. I thank equine advocates and join you in your efforts to make this information public knowledge by boycotting Pfizer products as long as they include PM PMU drugs and by requesting that physicians no longer prescribe them with gratitude, Gloria Steinem. We need to get the word out through people like that and, and through social media. We can stop it. And according to Dr. Kelasami, who I mentioned before, still the biggest market for these drugs are American women. And he believes, you know, there's a lot of theories, well, why move to China? And, you know, he believes that, that, that the drug company wanted to take the images of these mares and foals away from the American public, so move it to China. A lot of people don't want to take uh, drugs that are made in China or put anything in their bodies that are made in China. So I really, I really feel that if we can get the word out, we can, we can stop the spread of PMU drugs and get people to talk to their doctors about 
alternatives yes, that Susan, don't involve cruelty and which are actually better for them, according to many doctors. Susan, it would seem to me that anyone who loves horses should know all about what is happening, should be strongly opposed to what's going on here. And yet it seems to be an under-publicized issue. Why is that? There's a lot of propaganda that is put out by the drug companies. And then there are also, in these medical journals, you've heard about ghostwriting, where a drug company might hire an academic or a layperson to write a report for a medical journal where they are not physicians themselves, where they emphasize the positives and de-emphasize the negatives and have a doctor sign it. And there's an entire scandal about that now. There are several big drug companies um, involved, and a lot of them do it, and some do it more than others. And Pfizer has done it a lot with regard to PMU drugs. So, you know, they're just so big and so powerful that they've been allowed to get away with it. And also because of the fact that Premarin, you know, was around before any of the others. So, it's just a question of educating people, and that's why you know, we are involved in a campaign to try to get the word out. And I believe that once the American public is aware that these drugs have now been, are now being made in China, and that you know, in China they eat horses and they milk them. So they're attached to the plumbing to get the PMU on one side and their milk from another. And so there's no way to know what's even going on there. We've seen um, some photos from there. There's no way to get any activists in there. It's just totally closed. And that's exactly what the drug companies want. So. You have to think that once people learn about this, they're going to reject it. At least I hope so. Susan, what can people do? We're putting together um, a toolkit, a PMU toolkit, and we're going to do it online as well. In the meantime, people can go to our website, equineadvocates.org, and look up where it says issues. It'll say PMU. There's a letter, a dear colleague letter from Dr. Kelasami that you can print out and give to your, women can give to their doctors. There's a presentation that he gave at last year's summit, which is riveting. You should watch that. There are facts there. There's a PMU fact sheet, and we're going to be adding to it. This is just the beginning. But I, I do believe if you give this information to people, if you give them the tools to work with, they can get the word out. And but doctors also have to be, be made aware. You know, they're so busy. They're inundated. And I just think that by the very fact that the information given about Duavi is so kind of dishonest because they don't mention that Premarin is in there, you know, that has to get out. We've got to give people the tools so that they can go to their doctors, go to their friends, go to their families. And, and let them know what's really going on. Susan, how about boycotting the companies that produce it? Well, that's what Gloria Steinem uh, just said, and, and I think that that's a very good idea, and, and we're going to be doing that too. Uh, we're just organizing, and there'll be a lot, of, a lot of other groups involved, and, you know, my own doctor said, you need to start a grassroots campaign. You know, it's a grassroots effort, and I believe he's right, but if... Duavi fails in America, 
I think you will start to see a reduction in the in the, the amount of PMU production in China, but it has to be dramatic. There has to be a complete rejection of these drugs, and the only way we're going to the only way we're going to accomplish that is with education, and by the very fact that. You know, it's not just the Women's Health Initiative. There was a, a, another study more recent um, that was instituted by the Canadian Cancer Society about Canadian women who have come, uh, who have contracted um, breast cancer from taking these drugs. You know, equine estrogens are for horses; they're not for women. And uh, my doctor uh, and other doctors really like a drug like like estradiol. I think the commercial name is Estrace. But there are, you know, every woman is different. Back in 1942 and through the 50s, I was told the advertising uh, for Premarin was that if a woman hit 40, she was automatically put on it just because. You know, that's unacceptable now. But we have to take. An even further step: that there are there are drugs that are a lot more modern and not backward and not obsolete, and that's what we have to keep hammering. Exactly what Dr. Pryor said: you don't want to drive a Model T down the autobahn. President of Equine Advocates Susan Wagner, thank you for sharing this important information with us. My pleasure. was going to happen sooner or later an emotional support animal on an airplane bites somebody holy cow bob ferber is with us again legal expert bob ferber hey hi peter okay so this is a hot story details still not many details available yet but what i read is that while boarding on a plane that was supposed to go from atlanta to san diego an emotional support or what is purported to be an emotional support dog bit another passenger in the face with blood everywhere. Did you hear about that? You heard about that, right? Yes. yes. Okay. And uh, this may surprise a lot of people is it was not your proverbial case of a pit bull involved. It apparently is a Labrador mix that was involved in the incident and apparently badly injured or the initial reports are that the the passenger sitting next to the owner of the companion animal was pretty bloody and and the animal had to eventually be put in a crate to be transported. So yes, I have heard of it and um, looking at it with great interest. Yeah. So to me, this raises Oh, a whole bunch of questions, and I bet for you, too. What do we need to learn about this case, and what are the legal issues that are going to uh, be brought up by this? Well, it's first of all, this is not the first time that something like this has been raised. I, I can tell your audience that I, I got a several cases, one in particular, I'll never forget, a quadriplegic woman um, who had been a victim of horrible uh, violence. She had been a victim of uh, a, an incident where which caused her to be a paraplegic, and she was in a special wheelchair, and tragically even when she was in a wheelchair at one point she was victimized sexually oh as a, para, a quadriplegic mm. so she got a 
she got a service dog, not just a companion animal, but a, a full service dog. And the, the service dog, she added a component to it, which was a, a, she created. She had the dog there not just to help her with her, her daily activities, but to protect her. Yes. And it, this was, and so she had a dog that she actually had that was prepared to hurt people if they came too close. And what happened was that she had this dog that was actually very vicious and wouldn't let people near her. And at some point, even before the animal ever hurt anybody, animal control took the animal away. And it, and and she would call me crying hysterically, and even she had a lawyer calling me, uh, you know, claiming that this animal was a service animal, and so they, she was entitled to let this animal be that way. Well, the decision was made, and through a lot of research and looking up the law, it was... A, it was decided that, no, she did not have a right to have an animal that acted that way. Now, that was a case where the dog was intentionally trained or uh, intended to protect a, a really tra a victim that had been tragically victimized. In this case, we have something of a, in, in, the, in the legal system, we think it's a lower stand, it, it, it's a less protection a companion animal. Service animals have the ultimate protection. This is an animal that's for psychological comfort and even though they are allowed on airplanes and they are allowed in housing, these are the types of animals your audience should know that are not allowed in theaters. Right. They're not allowed right. to go in all public places. They're not, they're not necessarily allowed in all restaurants. And the law is still very unclear about that. So, But these animals don't have the full protection. So we have a companion an animal, not a service animal. So not that, and not especially trained either. Not trained, right? It just a you know and a, and and so it's just there for psychological comfort. And this is a very very controversial um, issue that's happening all over the country of people learning that because the Americans with Disabilities Act did provide for animals that are not as service animals, but as comfort animals, the companion animals that can provide comfort. You know, we've seen a trend around the country of people walking around in even markets and and restaurants with little fluffy, you know, a cute little dog and, and going on the beach in places where animals normally aren't allowed and, and saying, this is my companion animal. This is my animal for psychological comfort. And some people have even letters from doctors or psychologists saying that this animal provides important comfort for these people. And I'm not disputing that that's an important function. Mm -hmm. But these animals have no training, and you can say that, you know, that my vicious pit bull still gives me comfort. And that was one of the arguments that that quadriplegic yes. woman made, was yes. that even, this animal's not only trained, but it gives me also the psychological comfort. And just because <laughs> it protects me and it could bite people doesn't mean that I shouldn't be able to have it. Yeah. Well, the decision was made that in companion animals, you have to balance the interests of the owner of the companion animal and the interests of the public. In fact, you have to do that with service animals, too. So a service animal is not allowed in a restaurant if it's going to lift its leg and pee on all the tables. Uh, that's a legitimate reason for that animal to be removed from the restaurant. Mm -hmm. So when you have a, a, a 
companion animal that has no training at all and is coming into an extremely crowded, relatively stressful environment, yep. I mean, especially right. anybody who's flown coach these days <laughs> knows that, you know, just being in an airport, it's very stressful. And so, and you have a Labrador, not a small little fluffy, yep. you know, uh, Yorkshire Terrier sitting on a seat or sitting in between the seats. It's not surprising that there was at some point, you know, the dog got stressed or we don't even sure what triggered it, but the dog attacked this passenger. And more and more we see people advocating for the right to be able to take a companion on, a, on an airplane. We've had pigs on airplanes. We've had goats. I, I've actually spoken to flight attendants on airplanes because it's my career you know, I'm interested in this. And I've asked them, and they, they, each one of them has unbelievable stories mm. of animals, mm. parrots, um, snakes that have been brought on. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and you know, and it creates problems of what about people that are allergic? What about people that have been bitten by an animal before? Right. What about, in this case, animals brought on that can really hurt another human being and have basically no training for being in a crowded environment. So, Bob, who is potentially liable in this case, knowing what we know so far? Is the the owner of the dog at legal risk here, the airline, the, the person who issued the certificate? Well, the in most cases, when an animal bites, regardless of where it is, uh, the owner is responsible. Looking forward, the airlines are going to have to sort of plan a little better. You can imagine a scenario where sitting next to each other is uh, one passenger with an emotional support dog and one passenger with an emotional support ferret, let's say, or snake right. or cat. Right. And that's trouble. Yeah, it is. The airline... You know, this is a problem with in the in this area of law, and that the airlines feel they're not thrilled about having animals on airplanes. I can tell you that probably every lawyer that represents American Airlines, United, Southwest, all the airlines, if they had their choice, they would say that there's no animal ever allowed on an airplane because they don't want the liability question. They don't want the uh, the passengers to go through this difficult process of, you know, or they don't want their flight attendants and their crew to have to worry about, well, where do we put this animal? And is this one allowed? And is this one? And with hundreds of species of animals, which ones are allowed? Which ones are trained? Which ones aren't? So, you know, airlines clearly are not promoting this. They're, they're sort of suffering under or, or complying under laws that provide for protection for people that need service animals and companion animals. That's going to be an argument that if somebody sues the airline and says you should never have allowed this animal on, uh, the victim of this dog bite in this airline, for example, uh, the airline lawyers are going to come in and say, hey, we never really wanted this. We, we can't be held liable. We're just following the law. Yes, yes. And I think at this point that the airlines are on pretty solid ground yeah, that, yeah. Uh, you know, if, if let's say this Labrador Retriever mix before boarding the airplane started biting people in the airport and then the the airline allowed the crew said well it's still allowed on the plane then you could understand logically why the airline might be responsible par partially or fully for allowing the animal on the plane but from what we know in the news the airline had no way of knowing that you know, this dog was going to do anything bad. The law says that people are allowed to have companion animals. They do not have to be trained. And as most animal lovers know, it's, you know, uh, 
one of the breeds that is probably least likely to do that is going to be your typical Labrador Retriever. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, it doesn't mean they won't, but it, it typically means that they're a fairly gentle breed in most cases. So I don't think that the airline is going to be in trouble for this. Uh, so, but the owner could, and there could be a criminal case. But even though there are laws, criminal laws about animals biting other people, that usually involves that the animal has to have a predisposition. The owner has to have known that the animal was vicious. Uh, and from what we know, at least so far, we're not sure. There's no evidence that this animal had ever done anything like this before. But it's a little too early to tell about that. Uh, now, there's one exception to that or caveat you know, putting a black a, a mixed lab a, a fairly medium-sized dog I, let's say the dog is 45 50 60 pounds putting that dog in a in a in an area of the plane a passenger area where it's crowded a lawyer for the victim who got bitten could say the airline was negligent in that wait a minute you're putting a you have the ability to put somebody a dog anywhere in the plane right, you can right. put them in first class if yeah. you choose to do that yeah. of course you get into issues of bumping and horrible situations of moving passengers who don't want to move but the airline does to this point have absolute right to put passengers where they want to put them if for safety reasons. So you could argue that the airline should have said, wait a minute, you can bring your black lab on but or Labrador Retriever, but you can't put him in this coach seat. Either you're, we're going to put him up in first class or put him in, you know, maybe, what do they call it, the bulkhead seats, you know, where there's extra room. So there is a chance that somebody could argue that you know the airline should pay up also that they weren't fully responsible in allowing this dog to be in a crowded seat in this part of the airplane. So Bob, this case should be a warning, I would think, even if they have had a disability determination and have been issued a totally legitimate certificate to have one of these animals for travel or for their apartment, that it does not confer any special protection if their dog or other animal bites, right? Absolutely. Very, I think that's really, if there's a lesson to be learned for a message, you said it very well. Uh, you, just because you have an animal that is a service animal, a companion animal, or even a service animal that's well-trained, it doesn't absolve you of, of responsibility to have that animal be safe around other people. I have a feeling we're going to hear more about this case pretty soon. I do. I do. Bob Ferber, thank you very much. Very interesting. You're very welcome, Peter. Anytime. This is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. In a few minutes, Lori's going to be speaking with neurologist Dr. Stephen Hansen about seizures in dogs and cats. But first in the news, good news from Delaware. The governor just signed a bill into law that would prohibit cities in the state from enacting breed-specific legislation. So that means that uh, regulations protecting the public from dangerous dogs can't define 
criminal liability based upon breed-specific criteria. Determining whether a dog is dangerous or not will be based on the individual behavior of the dog, not the breed. Lee Greenwood, who is the legislative attorney from Best Friends Animal Society, he said, The passage of HB 13 is a resounding victory for dogs and dog lovers, not only in Delaware, but across the country, as the momentum against breed discriminatory legislation continues to build. The simple truth is that breed discrimination doesn't work, and the safest laws focus on the behavior of the dog and the dog owner. Yay! Up in Portland, Maine... They are considering banning the use of wild and exotic animals for entertainment. The Portland City Council is taking this up, and the ban would exclude elephants, bears, monkeys for live entertainment and other animals also. The Cora Shrine Circus has been going up to Portland for many years, and they would be mostly affected. This wave seems unstoppable, doesn't it? Okay, Lori and Dr. Hansen, hit it. Today, I want to welcome back veterinary neurologist, Dr. Stephen Hansen. Today's topic is seizures in our companion animals. Dr. Hansen, how common are seizures in dogs and cats? I don't have any uh, statistic on that, but it's certainly something that we see a lot of. And I, I think that most general veterinarians probably see a seizure case once a week. So um, it's not a very common condition, but it's certainly not uncommon. And what causes seizures? Seizures can be caused by anything that affects the brain, which can be um, some sort of chemical imbalance in the body, like, say, due to liver disease. It can be from a toxin. Uh, Seizures can occur from an infection in the brain or a tumor or a stroke. So a wide variety of things can cause seizures. It's one of the most common neurological symptoms. But The condition that we see most often is what's called idiopathic epilepsy, which is a genetic condition where a dog has recurring seizures um, because of an electrical malfunction in their brain. In human medicine, we often would do an electroencephalograph or EEG to decide if epilepsy is a likely cause of the seizure. Do you do EEGs on animals? EEGs are done, but there are a couple of challenges that we have with dogs that um, are a little bit unique. First of all, dogs have heads that are much, much thicker than a person's head. So they sometimes have a couple of inches of muscle and then a very thick skull. So an EEG really just gives us a reflection of what's happening on the very surface of the brain. The other limitation is that oftentimes we can only tell if a seizure is going on if we're doing the EEG during the seizure. So sometimes with people, they'll put on the array of electrodes on the scalp and then the person will sit in a room for a while until they actually have a seizure, which could take a day. So with dogs, we can't do that because they wouldn't tolerate all the electrodes. There are some studies now being done with setups like that, that that can be worn for some period of time, but that's still very much in its infancy. How do individuals recognize if their dog or cat is having a seizure? Most of the time, it's uh, pretty clear because generally what they'll do is fall to their side and and convulse. They don't respond if their name is called. Uh, Sometimes they clench their jaw and hypersalivate. Uh, There are 
other, and that's something called a generalized seizure. There are other seizures that are less obvious. Um, in people, sometimes kids especially will have something called absence seizures where they stare off briefly. We don't know if dogs get that or not. I think that'd be very difficult to to determine. But seizures can manifest as just a twitching of the face or twitching on one side of the body. But usually it's pretty clear that something um, something's awry. And this is an emergency, correct? If a seizure happens for the first time, it should definitely be um, dealt with as an emergency because it's hard to know what's going to happen next. It could progress into um, a very prolonged seizure state called status epilepticus, which can actually damage the brain. With a dog with an established seizure history, say they have idiopathic epilepsy and they have a 30-second seizure every few months, that's something that can just be written out at home. So the owner can kind of, um, you know, help the dog to avoid self-trauma during the seizure and just let it uh, subside. And but generally, if yeah. it's a first-time seizure, a dog should be taken to a veterinarian immediately. And how are they treated? Seizures are treated with anticonvulsant medication. So there are a variety of different drugs that we use. Uh, some are just used in the short term to actually stop a seizure, and then some are used for maintenance therapy. Generally, once a dog has idiopathic epilepsy, they'll have seizures their whole life. So usually long-term medication is required. And that that creates the challenge of trying to avoid drug side effects with long-term use. So we're always trying to uh, derive safer medications and, and regimens for giving these medications long term. Are special diets or lifestyle modifications helpful? In some cases, if seizures are occurring due to some sort of internal organ disorder, then uh, certain diets are helpful. With epilepsy, there's no real established diet that makes a difference. There's certainly a lot of anecdotes and you know some people feel that certain diets um, are likely to help control seizures, but generally speaking, no. Now the other thing to keep in mind is that if a dog has a seizure disorder and they get sick for some other reason, it can make them more likely to have a seizure. So if a dog has epilepsy and say inflammatory bowel disease, they may need a special diet for their inflammatory bowel disease, which would also indirectly help control their seizures. Right, right. Now, do other animals get seizures, like rabbits or turtles, snakes, horses? Yeah, actually, um, just about any animal can have seizures. I, I once treated a sea lion that had seizures. Oh. So um, any, anything with a brain can have a seizure. Like a rescued sea lion? Yeah, it was uh, picked up. Uh, in South Orange County, I think, by a, a rescue organization and started having seizures. Veterinary neurologist Dr. Stephen Hansen, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.